0: You're listening to the audio from Tuesday night class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, well, welcome to week three of 10 hard questions. Uh, Over these next few weeks, we're going to keep exploring some important questions and stumbling blocks that many people uh, many of you have when it comes to Christianity, and a lot of people are asking some really good questions. And uh, I, I have appreciated the fact that um, throughout the week, um, many of you will send me emails uh, asking questions about all sorts of things. Um, so so this is really good. I think it's it's important to ask questions, and Jesus can handle our toughest questions. His reality does not stand or fall on how well... I answer them or fail to answer them, he's still Lord. So we've looked at two questions so far. How can you say there's only one true faith? And last week we looked at doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Today we're going to be looking at how can you take the Bible literally? Now Before we dive into this, I need to also give you a highlight of an upcoming event that will be taking place on Tuesday nights, but it's within the 10 hard questions, but it's going to be kind of distinct. And that is on November 1st. Uh, We have a special guest coming. He's a professor uh, at Regent College. His name is David Robinson, who actually lives in Coquitlam, I just discovered. and uh, he is going to be coming. And, and, the, and the big question that he's going to be addressing, I think is, is a really fun question, is this. Doesn't everything happen for a reason? Or does everything really happen for a reason? Now, I often hear Christians say that when stuff happens. They're like, well, we know that everything happens for a reason. Does it? Um, and how do we understand that God is providential he is over all of history how does that mesh with the decisions we make how does God direct us can he direct us does prayer make any difference I mean these are really big questions and so this is an area that he's actually uh, studied quite a bit in. And so I'm going to be interviewing him on November 1st. And it's going to be a kind of a fun night because it's, it's co-sponsored by Regent College, which is a graduate school in Vancouver, my alma mater. That's where I got my master's. And um, so I'll be interviewing him. And, we're, and during the evening, we're going to have book draws and and uh, all sorts of fun things. So that's coming up on November 1st. I want to just give you a, a shout on that one and, and, and to get word out on that because I'd like to get as many people out to this as possible. Um, yeah keep your questions coming. The last week is kind of like the ask anything night so if you have questions I've received some but keep, keep them coming and so uh, we can talk about a lot of extra hard questions. Um, Tonight I want to begin by doing two things, uh, well three things. I'm going to start off, I'm going to read a passage. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man, blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In Psalm 119, which is quite a long psalm, we come across these words, that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me your ways lord we uh commit tonight to you and we pray that you would speak to us there's no point in doing all sorts of teaching unless you're going to change hearts otherwise all that we do and all that i say is like a clanging gong or a resounding cymbal. so we pray lord that you would speak your love into our hearts And that um, you would draw us deeper into our life in you. So we come before you tonight with a posture of receptivity. That we would hear from you. So we pray, speak, Holy Spirit, speak. And allow us to respond to what you say. That's our desire. In Jesus' name, amen alright so I'm gonna get you guys started and uh, the way I'm gonna get you started is uh, I'm gonna have you just talk around your table a very simple question what is reading the Bible like for you if you've ever read the Bible and what are the biggest questions you have when it comes to reading the Bible or approaching the Bible okay with me I'll say it again what is reading the Bible like for you? What are the biggest questions or challenges you have when you're approaching the Bible? My cyber friends you're gonna to have to put it on the chat line and we can we can uh, in, uh, engage on that but I'm gonna have you talk just around your tables about those questions. You okay? Just for a couple minutes. All right here we go. All right let's uh let me gather, gather you in. Does anybody okay, I realize I asked two different kinds of questions. So what is reading the Bible like for you? Is it always enjoyable, or is it hard, or is it... I know as a good Christian I ought to do this, but I don't really like reading, let alone reading the Bible. What's reading the Bible like for you? Encouraging. Encouraging, yeah, on here it's daily bread. Um, yeah, what else? Engaging, engaging, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, well, and some parts of the Bible, if you take it seriously, ought to disturb you. It ought to be like, What's going on here? Mm-hmm. Like, or it could be confusing or it could be disturbing, and those are two. They can be separate or they can be both. They can be combined, right? For sure. I find I go to the New Testament more than the Old Testament. Okay, so you feel more comfortable in the New Testament than the Old Testament. How many of you are the same way? That if you're going to look... Yeah? Now, let's leave out the Psalms. New Testament or Old Testament? (laughs) Still? Okay, good. Proverbs, yes. (laughs) Okay, well, that's good. Well, tonight's big question, tonight's big question is how, how can you take the Bible literally? That's our question. But I want to begin with a sad story, okay? It's a true story. So when I was in high school, I invited this girl to the community hall dance. I lived in a small town, and a couple times a year our community hall had a dance and I was excited. I asked this girl that i would liked for a while, will you go to the dance with me? And she said, yes. So, so far it's so good. Uh, we went to the community hall dance and I was so excited because I really liked this girl. And we danced a little bit and uh, I said, shall I get us some drinks? And she goes, sure. So I went off and I grabbed, you know, two Cokes and I came back and there's a song playing and I looked and on the dance floor, there was my date making out with this guy who was like two years older than me in high school. And I never saw her again for the rest of the evening. I told you it was a sad story. Now, I just want to say because as a result of all of this, my heart was broken. My heart was broken. Now my guess is you could probably tell similar stories where your heart was broken but I can guarantee that in each one of our situations nobody, nobody thought I should call 911 because obviously your cardiac organ has been ruptured and you're in you're in pain and you will die No. I'm not going to live. Yeah. Everybody knows that when you say your heart is broken, that that's something that's serious, but it's not something to call 911 over. And part of our challenge living in our world today is to distinguish literal truth from metaphorical truth. Now, when my kids were young, I would read to them, maybe you remember this. How many of you remember Amelia Bedelia? Yeah. Okay, Amelia Bedelia, which I find quite funny. But Amelia Bedelia, what is she like? What does she do? She takes everything literally. And so when she is told to dress the turkey, she dresses the turkey with socks and with something. Like and when she is told to draw the curtains, She gets a piece of paper, and she looks at them, and she draws them. She does everything literally. And you know what? If an old friend told you that they literally died of embarrassment when their teacher read aloud their Valentine's card when they were in grade four, you would not look at them and say, Wow, I am witnessing another resurrection. (laughs) Right? Now, in reality, in reality, we we use, and this is, this is very common. We use figurative and literal words to describe reality. In fact, you can speak lies literally and speak profound truths metaphorically. And so when it comes to the Bible, and this is a key point this evening, we need to recognize that some of the most profound truths that are given to us in the Bible are given to us, not necessarily literally, but metaphorically. Now, it's been a while since we've taken grammar. Uh, metaphor. What do I mean by metaphor? Well, I looked up Grammarly.com, and uh, because because I've been dying to teach this. Right been dying to teach this, right? So we know, we know what is a metaphor. A metaphor is a figure of speech that describes an object or an action in a way that isn't literally true, but helps to explain an idea and make a comparison. So a metaphor states one thing is another thing. It equates two things, not because they're the same, but for the sake of comparison. If you take a metaphor literally, it probably sounds strange. Are there actually any black sheep in your family? Like, what do you mean by that, right? And so we find metaphors in poetry, literature, and anytime somebody wants to add some color to their language. So tonight we're going to explore what it means to take the Bible literally and whether it's okay to take some parts non-literally, okay? We'll explore, because sometimes we'll explore whether or not when we take the Bible non-literally, is that just a way to hide from uncomfortable truths, which may be the case. So um, there's one uh, denomination, uh, Marty was telling me about this, um, where she says this this denomination says, we don't take the Bible literally, but we take it seriously. So what does that mean? Okay. Okay. So let's begin by asking the question. Is it inconsistent to read some texts in the Bible literally, and some not? Well, again, we live in a language. we live in a world full of metaphors. Uh, many of you, you bust your gut just getting here. <laughs> right? Or you bust your butt? <laughs> you choose your metaphor. Um, you know, I love my wife with my whole heart this heart, this organ. Um, and speaking this way and describing life in this way is part of being human. But for some reason, when it comes to the Bible, we forget about this. So I was looking, I was doing some research this week, and I read there was a poll, and I have this in your notes, the, the, um, the uh, chart. It showed that s- roughly 75% of evangelical Christians believe that the Bible is literally true. And, and sometimes people will come up to me and say, come on, David, do you honestly believe that? That the Bible is literally true? Now, if I say no, then right away that's going to raise all sorts of questions. People will think that I doubt the authority of Scripture, that I'm a full-blown heretic. In fact, if you look at this chart, do you see the chart up here? It's just it's a, it's a latest poll that was just done. It's, it's hard to see. But the question is this. It's interesting. It says, statement number 16. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Okay, this is a, a poll done among evangelicals. Now, it does say in 2022, 26% of people agree with this, That, but that means that over 70% disagree they say that the Bible is literally true or about 75 percent and and but this is what gets this is where, where it gets me you guys see this in your notes online yeah this is what, where, where I'm a little bit concerned, is underneath there's an you know, there's a interpretation that says, a rising disbelief in the Bible's literal truth may help us understand why American evangelicals also increasingly believe that religious faith is subjective experience rather than an objective reality. I'm like, well, wait a minute. So if a person does not believe that the Bible is entirely literally true, does that mean that they are embracing a plurality of truths, or they don't believe the Bible. Is that, a, is that a reasonable conclusion? I don't think it is, but we'll come back to this. Should we take the Bible literally, word for word? Well, I don't know how we can. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's not suggesting that he's a farmer. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, he is not identifying as a plant. Right? In fact, if you study Jesus' life, you'll see that a lot of people misunderstand Jesus. They misunderstand Jesus because they take his teaching literally at times. Uh, Jesus says to so bystanders in the temple, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And everybody scoffs, and he said, "Well, how are you going to destroy this temple?" And as if if you did destroy the temple, how are you going to build it in three days? So they miss the point. Uh, Jesus talks to Nicodemus, and he says, "You must be born again." And Nicodemus is like, "What? How am I going to go back into my mother and get birth to me as an adult? That makes no sense." Jesus tells a woman at a well. He says he talks about giving her living water, and she's she's wondering how how he can give him that water. You have nothing nothing to draw water with misses the point. There's so many parts of the Bible that need to be read figuratively or not literally, literarily. But this is a question, does this mean none of the Bible should be taken literally? And and by by looking towards metaphors and, and uh and symbols—is am I just trying to avoid difficult texts? And by saying things, you know, okay, these are just metaphors. These are they, they, Jesus didn't really mean that. So some people say, well, did did Jesus really rise from the dead? Or does that just mean that Jesus, you know, he symbolized what it means to? work real hard for a cause that he believed in to the point that he suffered and you know what suffering is okay because we need to strive for good good causes and in a way even if we may die in a way our spirits rise again and people are inspired by what we've done maybe that's what's going on in this whole death and resurrection thing right I've heard people make that argument. Oh, we can't, you know, because people who die, they stay dead. They don't actually become raised to a new life. So it must mean something else. It must just mean he inspired somebody and his name goes on. So in that sense, he kind of lives forever. But here's the thing. In the same way we speak about metaphorical truth, I nearly died getting here on time. We speak literal truth. I am teaching you the third question in ten hard questions tonight. And, and, and most of the time, to distinguish between literal truth and metaphorical truth is easy. It's, it's a cakewalk. <laughs> to dis- the cake? <laughs> Where's the cake? I'm walking on it, yeah. Oh, <laughs> To distinguish literal form from metaphorical truth, we know that. And, and, and we know that, right? We know when we read the Psalms that the mountains do not literally clap their hands, right? It's not like the mountains sprouted arms and are Like, we know that. When, this, when the trees, when the forests sing praise, we know that they don't develop vocal cords in their action. We know that. But on the other hand, when the New Testament writers emphasize that Jesus was literally raised from the dead, bones, wounds, and all, that he was not a ghost, but a resurrected body that made breakfast, that ate food, and the food did not fall through him and clatter on the floor, Mm -hmm. that means something actually literally happened. And so here's the challenge, though, here's the challenge. There are metaphors throughout Scripture, but there's also radical historical claims that the Bible makes, claims of miracles, everlasting truth, and life and death decisions about whether or not we trust Jesus. So, there are some places, though, in the Bible, and this is where there's debate, where we read something and we have to decide, huh, literal or metaphorical? so you guys have talked uh, mentioned a couple of these but just among among yourselves or on a chat line just or where in the bible do you struggle with is this literal or is this figurative language could be a book in the bible it could be an occurrence um lloyd you talked about balaam's donkey right uh would be an example is this uh, you know is this did a donkey actually speak or is there something else going on so take a moment just around your tables and just say and and if some of you may be familiar with scripture and it's like yes yeah, this place some of you may not be f- familiar with the bible and be like i don't know i just want to listen that's okay right because we all come from all different backgrounds but just take a moment where do you kind of have this question? It's like how oh, i'm not sure if it's literal or metaphorical okay just take a moment to talk among yourselves yeah. Okay, um, let me gather you in, and let me hear from you, and I'll tell you about some of the ones that we've heard here. So some of the ones that we heard on the chat were Genesis, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis all the way up to the flood, Tower of Babel, yeah, what else? Revelation, the whole thing, right? Okay, yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah natalia asked that same thing you know the ages of, of people like did they really live to be that old yeah good what else yeah the lord's day is one day is like a thousand years yeah yeah good what else Right. right, okay good, yeah so one of the one of the comments was you know the, the challenge is is basically going from there to here. What's going on there? Finally get a sense of what's going on there. Now how does this apply to here? Yeah that's that's good. Uh, some people were asking or we pointing out um, you know the book of Jonah uh, is, is is another example, or, or the book of Job. Um, I mean, there's there's places where, where you have to wrestle with this. I mean, another one is, is, and there's been lots of fighting over this one, is when Jesus, um, Jesus's body, <laughs> the bread and the wine, is this Jesus' body and his blood, right? Lots of uh, blood spilt over that one. Uh, hell as a lake of fire. Um, yeah, there's there's lots of different places, and and so this requires some deep study. Um, I'm not going to resolve them all for you tonight. <laughs> um, there's take a long time, but here's the thing: as Christians, and I remember Eugene Peterson saying this one time in a class. He said, um, as Christians, we ought to read biblical commentaries. Like people read detective novels. Now we nobody reads detective novels so much anymore. So I, I knew somebody was said, "I do, yeah," uh, and I do too. I read some. But what he means is that it should be very, uh, very common practice for followers of Jesus Christ to immerse ourselves into people who are gifted with really understanding the culture what's going on in that time period how the kind of writing and all that and we need to read commentaries very carefully and and when I, re- so whenever I'm studying any book in the Bible, I always try to find one of the best or a number of the best commentaries. And commentaries basically walk through the book in the Bible and they help you understand what's going on. I'll tell you this, it's devotional. It's, it's very devotional doing this because you start to see things that you wouldn't otherwise see. But getting back to the whole question about metaphor and literal, Um, It gets confusing. Sometimes there's a connection even between metaphorical and literal miracles. Like Jesus, when he he heals the paralytic, um, he he forgives his sin first and then heals his body. So there's there's an actual healing that takes place. But the way the healing took place that followed forgiveness of sin, there's a message that's also being given, right? So he almost combines the two when you read parables again parables a certain genre of writing um, again when we read jesus telling the parable of the good samaritan we know he's not describing a crime scene um, he's, he's trying to make a different point point. and so it's really really important when we read the bible to understand what kind of writing we're reading okay this is really important because we need to interpret the Bible because it is unlike any other book. The Bible is made up of many different kinds of writing. There's historical writing, there's poetry, there's wisdom literature, there's prophecy, there are letters, there's a, there are parables, there, there is apocalyptic literature, which is Revelation and, and bits of Daniel and, and, and you'll find it even in other places. And each one of these particular types of writing have interpretive rules. Right? Now, I gave you this example before, but one of the things I, I used to do when I taught Revelation is I'd bring my, my car manual from my car. And I'd have, you know, you know Gord come up here, read, read my car manual, but I want you to read it as if it's poetry, which is always quite funny. And so you read my car manual as if it's poetry, and it sounds quite funny and then I give you some poetry. And I say, I read this like my car manual. And it's just, it's just awkward. Because each, each piece of writing has its own rules, which, which we know, but somehow we forget when it comes to the Bible. I don't know why. So each one has, so the Bible is ancient, it has historical particularity, it's written at a different time, a different place, different cultures, different kinds of people, different understandings of the world, different occasions, and different, writers. and different writers with different backgrounds. Very good, yeah. Writing in all kinds of different genres of writing. And so whenever I teach church history, so I'm t- I teach church history one this semester, and I teach church history two next semester, um, when I teach church history, I always tell my students, you need to realize the past is a foreign country. They do things different there. And so you can't just jump to the past and say, well, how come you're not doing it? Because it's a different world, different rules, different ways of seeing things. And so, for example, when we pick up a letter written to the city of Corinth, to the church in the city of Corinth 2,000 years ago in a different language, with a genre of letter writing, which was a set form of writing in the first century, you can't just do a straightforward reading of it. Well, you can, but you could run into trouble. Now, what I don't want you to do tonight is to mishear me. Like, we can read the Bible, anyone can read the Bible, and God's truth will come through. Absolutely. And so it's not like you need to have a PhD in order to approach the Bible. That's not what I'm saying at all. But here's the point. You cannot plumb the depths of the wisdom of God by reading his word. You can go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And the more deep you go, the more your heart is going to be filled. Right? It's, it's It's a beautiful thing. And part of the ways we go deeper into God's word is by studying it, by by, by learning how it's, how it's made. And so we need to go back, we need to intelligently go from here to there, Jessica, what well, you're saying, right? We need to go here to there, and then back here. And, and, and the way we do that, there's two fields of study. One is called, so we interpret, when you study the Bible, what's that field called? The field of exegesis. Yeah, it's the field of exegesis, that's what it's called. Now, you have to be careful that you don't overstudy and you don't keep the Word. You don't think that you're in charge of God's Word because if you study God's Word as if you're in charge and, you know, what is going to... Then it goes from exegesis to exit Jesus Um, because (laughs) you don't experience God if you're if you're in charge kind of thing so you have to come at it humbly recognizing this is God's word and so you go from studying God's word to interpreting God's word and what is the field of interpretation 10 points to Gryffindor who knows homiletics Homiletics would be preaching the word yeah it's close starts with an h Hermeneutics. hermeneutics that's it hermeneutics that's right so we need to set, and so and that's the whole science of interpretation. And one of the best books and you knew I was going to post the book is this book here, How to Read the Bible for All Its Worth by Gordon Fee. This book has sold a gazillion copies and it's very readable and it helps you understand and helps you read the Bible. This was a textbook when I was back in in, uh, in, in seminary and it and is still really really readable. Um, Because we have to realize, when we look at the Bible, we need to realize that the Bible is not written to us. The Bible's not written to us. Last time I checked, I am not a Corinthian, right? I am not a Roman. But the Bible is written for us. It's not written to us. It's written for us. And so we need to take that journey from what was meant in the text to what it means today. And bridging the, di- the, the distance between reader and the world of the word is not simple. So we need to make sure that our understanding of the text is, is, is clear. is that of the Holy Spirit's and the author's intent. We need to recognize the character and style of the writing and operating within its boundaries. So, <laughs> Mike saw this... Uh, this, I have in your notes an illustration. <laughs> have you guys seen the illustration yet? Yes. Oh, come on, it's fun. So this is from the, uh, an old Christian satirical magazine. And they say, what is an ideal woman? Well, <laughs> let's look at Song of Solomon. How is she described? Well, we know that, uh, you know, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil your hair is like a flock of goats there yeah okay Um, your lips are like scarlet thread your temples are like a slice of pomegranate (laughs) your neck is like the tower of david (laughs) built with rows of stone your okay your two breasts are like two fawns twins of a gazelle which feeds among the lilies your lips drip honey honey and milk are under your tongue and your fragrance is like the fragrance of lebanon Your navel is a round goblet. I like that. That's a little goblet at the bottom. Okay, anyhow. So if you want to get literal, this is what literally the ideal woman, according to Solomon, looks like. Right? I love that. Now, one of the things that comes out of this is... um, is, uh, isn't the Bible full of contradictions? I mean, this is one of the things when we're reading the Bible, it's just like, and part of the reason why we come, not always, but one of the reasons why we may say that the Bible is full of contradictions is because sometimes we read the writing maybe not in the right way. So, for example, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and if you read the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, You'll see that Jesus will enter the temple and he gets angry and he drives out all the uh, all the merchants, right? All the people selling and he says, "You know, you've made my father's house into a den of thieves and it should be a house of prayer," right? But if you read the book of John, when does that take place? If you read the book, it takes place really, really early. Yeah, well, really early in the book. I think it's in chapter 3. So, the other Gospels put it right at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, end of his three years. But John puts it at the beginning, and people say, Ah! See? They can't even agree. Um, Contradiction. But one of the things you need to realize is when you read the, you know, in particular, the Gospels, the things that you and I are really focused in on, which is accuracy, chronology, um, and um, I had three things, <laughs> accuracy and in, 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 in chronology for two of them, anyhow, uh, they don't really care about. John has, he's, he's arranging the gospel to communicate a message about Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean it's not true. But if you're expecting a reporter from the chicago tribune kind of report and that is not what you're going to find in a document from the first century for example the book of matthew if you read the book of matthew and you read the book of mark you'll see some overlap but mark the book of mark is considerably shorter than the book of matthew but the other thing is you look at the book of matthew and you look at jesus's teaching it seems to be arranged differently you notice that? If you look, take a look at the book of and if you have a red letter Bible, look at where all the red letters are. And you're going to see that they're not dispersed throughout the book of Matthew. In fact, they're, they're, they're clumped together. Jesus' teaching is clumped together in five sections. Why? See, that's a question you should ask. Not oh look, it's different from Mark, and of course it's contradiction. No, no. What why do you think Matthew's doing that? You done that in BSF? <laughs> no. Well, Matthew does this because he's showing that the five sections of Jesus' teaching are going to map the five books of Moses, the Torah. And Jesus, in his identity, is the fulfiller of the law. He is the new Israel, and so Matthew arranges it that way pedagogically to teach the new church about just who Jesus is. So so he has purposes behind this. Luke, if you read the book of Luke, you see a real emphasis on the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is everywhere in the book of Luke. Jesus being prompted by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, Luke is also the author of the book of Acts, which is the giving of the Spirit and the early church. From what we know about Luke is that he was the only writer of the New Testament who's a Gentile. He's not Jewish. And so what is his concern? His concern is to show how the Spirit of God has fallen upon the church and will reach the ends of this earth that the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that all the nations of the world will be blessed is being fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus and so that's what Luke is getting at does that mean what he's describing didn't happen no not at all but he's arranging it differently Mark is more concerned about mirroring Jesus and Jesus's life with a picture of the exodus so I mean that's a take a lot longer to describe but that's what Mark is concerned with he's showing how Jesus in his life, death and resurrection brings about the new exodus. In the same way Israel was delivered out of slavery, Jesus delivers us out of the slavery of sin. Now, you start diving down into this, and it's like, wow, there's some real death. Like as I said, the deeper you go, the more, I'll just speak for myself, the more I'm in, I'm in awe of who God is. I'm gonna pull a Pastor Mark. I don't even know where I am in my notes. still. So. Uh, <laughs> oh, let me just tell you this this other thing. Um, and I have friends who can um, who can explain this better than I can. Um, but years ago, years ago, I um, I worked down in Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha, Nebraska. Anybody here from Omaha, Nebraska? It's the home of the Corn Huskies. No Corn Huskers. Yeah. I called them Corn Huskies to a room full of Omahans you want to make a room go silent? <laughs> I, was trying to, I was trying to make a bridge with them. They're all from Omaha. It's a different culture. So I thought, hey, I'll do some cross-cultural stuff. I said, you guys got a good football team in these year. we sure do. I said, how do you think the corn huskies are gonna do this year? <laughs> That's corn huskers son. right Oops. So I just called them corn huskies from then on. Um, anyhow, the pastor I was working for was going to New York and to do a conference and he asked me to go with him but uh, he flew i had to take a bus right across america uh a greyhound bus i get to new york and uh, i had some time to kill and it's at this seminary he says well why don't you just sit in on a class so i said all right i'll sit in on a class on and the class i sat in on was on ezekiel and it was like in the middle of the book of ezekiel and uh, i don't know if you've read the book of ezekiel there's certain parts that are kind of r-rated they're pretty intense, um, and that was the section we were reading. But anyhow, yeah, I'm sitting there, and the and the guy was introducing us to um, the meaning of um, kind of a literary device that the Old Testament prophets would often use. Not just the prophets, but it's all throughout the Old Testament, and it's a it's a device called a chiasm. And a chiasm basically goes like this: A B C D. And then it goes C1, B1, A1. So basically, the writer will say something. He'll have a second point, a third point, and then a key point. And then these following three points mirror. So A1 or A and A1 match each other. B and B1 match each other. C and C1 match each other. And if you can actually discern that, you can see what the key points that the writer's trying to make. It's unbelievable. And so it's called a chiasm, yeah. And so if you read the book of uh, Ezekiel, he points out all these chiasms all throughout the book of Ezekiel. So my head's spinning. And he says, alright, I'm really gonna blow your mind because step back and you have to realize that the entire book is chiastic and that there's chiasms within chiasms. And I'm like, what kind of writing is this? You know, people look at, you know, the, oh, the gospel writers, they're country bumpkins, bunch of, you know, whatever. they do. These are brilliant, brilliant men. And um, when you start to plumb the depths of just how these books are structured, and they're not just structured this way for no reason, they're structured to give theological truths, who God is and what it means to know him. I'll tell you, your head starts spinning, and you stand back and you say, who am I that you be mindful of me? I was once in a class... And uh, the class was on the book of Genesis. And Bruce Walkie, who's an Old Testament scholar, was teaching it. And walkie has been here uh, before. And he's, he's a heavyweight Old Testament scholar. So he's, he's teaching the class. And there was about 150 of us in this class. It was an afternoon class. And we're sitting there. And as Walkie would do, he had this Havid accent. He was just talking about you know, the book of Genesis. And then he began to preach. And he began to talk about the, the glory of God. And, and just who God is. And, and we, and I'm telling you, we were swept up into realms unknown. And we beheld the glory. And I, I, I don't, you know, I don't use language like this very much, right? <laughs> I'm not this kind We of, oh, behold the glory of God. I don't use that kind of language. But this time, and when he was finished, he says, all right, we, we should take a break. And I remember there's 150 of us. And it was like, we all woke up from asleep. And I remember looking at my friends And they looked at me and they said, what just happened? I said, I don't know. But we were, and it was just, it was through just drawing us into the wonder of God's word. And so this is important stuff. Um, And so sometimes what we think is a contradiction is not a contradiction. It's, It's, you know, Jesus is the lamb of God and he's a good shepherd. Well, how can you be a lamb and a shepherd? Well, if you allow that to be a paradox to draw you into the mystery of God, Well, then, you don't just say, oh, you know, I can't be a lamb and a shepherd. Make up your mind. Well, no, maybe you're being drawn into something that's a lot deeper, right? So some people say, are there contradictions in the Gospels? Um, Bart Ehrman, he's a a, um, a New Testament scholar, former evangelical, and he just has written extensively on on these contradictions, right? And... um, one time he says, he says, well, how come it says in the book of Matthew, how come Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me? And then in Mark chapter 9, the one who is not against us is for us. He says, does he say both things? Could he mean both things? How can both be true at once? Or is it possible that the one of the gospel writers got things switched around? But you can ask the question, it's like, well, why do we assume that Jesus would only say one thing one way? I mean, we see him doing similar things, saying similar things in different places at different times. And as a pastor, I know, and I know this may come as a shock, that sometimes I'll use an illustration more than once. Um, (laughs) Or twice, or three times, or four times. But same with rabbinic teaching in the first century. I mean, people would give different different teachings that are similar to each other. Even if you read in, in the Gospels, Jesus tells a story about the feeding of the 5,000. And then right after that, the feeding of the 4,000. And some scholars say, well, you know, obviously the writer has gotten everything mixed up. There's just probably one event, but they've made a mistake and they've put this event twice and they've gotten the second part wrong because it's 4,000 and it should be 5,000. But Jesus actually Afterwards, makes reference to both of the feedings. And there's a theological truth that he is being, that he's communicating in the feeding of the 5,000 and later the feeding of the 4,000. He does it to make a theological point. We don't have to go into that, but there's reasons for this. And sometimes, you know, we want things in chronological orders. Like, well, how come John puts the cleaning of the temple at the beginning, and the other guys put it at the end? And we want it chronological. We want it nice and neat and tidy. But these guys have different things in mind. And sometimes it's artistic. They're trying to communicate something. And and we're okay with that in movies. I mean, how many of you have seen the movie Arrival? Has anybody seen the movie with Arrival with Amy Adams? Has anybody ever seen that? yeah 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 not many eh? well let me tell you it's a surprise ending no I don't to, but I'll just say this one I, in, in my mind is one of the most powerful movies I've seen it's a very good movie um, but in the movie they play around with chronology and they do it for an artistic reason and once you understand what's going on well then the movies even more powerful um, so I mean sometimes that's the case right and I think sometimes it's a little bit arrogant of us to suggest that, hey, if it were up to us, the gospel writers ought to conform to how we think they ought to tell the story. Sometimes they're not precise in their descriptions. We want them to be precise. You know, in, in Luke 24, when Jesus, if we read that Jesus told the two men, or the, the, the two companions, um, all about himself through the old testament you know how he shows up through the old testament he tells him the whole story of the old testament part of me is like luke give us some details what did he say don't just summarize right so we want details but on the other hand you get these amazing touches of authenticity and rings of truth in some of the details of the passages the one that i was just preaching last week i was preaching at rail city where um in in acts chapter three where peter and john they see this beggar and the beggar looks at him and peter says silver and gold i have not but what i have i give to you in the name of jesus christ of nazareth rise up and walk okay but there's just this little detail and it says peter looked at him and he says and he reached out his right hand and he helped him up i'm just like that like that's just an interesting detail And you find that all throughout the the Gospels is these little details like that I think that give it it a certain ring of truth. And sometimes we'll read things that seem to be contradictory, but again, if you study it carefully, it may not be contradictory. And sometimes in terms of locations, um, these are not as contradictory as we think they are. So Peter Williams has written a book. Uh, said, uh, can we trust the Gospels? And he points out the extraordinary claims that the Gospels, he says, they would pass historical tests with flying colors. He said the manuscript evidence alone, and those of you who have taken Alpha, you know this, um, we have more manuscript evidence for the life of Jesus than we do for for many, uh, for most major historical figures, certainly from that time period. And again, you get some of these interesting little uh, notes like Simon of Cyrene, we read about him that what does Simon of Cyrene do? takes up the cross, right? Yeah, he, he helps Jesus, he takes up the cross. He's ordered to take up the, the cross and carry it for Jesus. Um, and then we get this little little detail It says that Simon of Cyrene was the father of Alexander and Rufus which is interesting because they were known within the early church community. who could, And so they're just listed there as people who could corroborate this account. And there's a book written by a guy named Richard Baucom, which I would encourage you, if you're struggling with this, two books I would recommend to you. One is this um, Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams. And by the way, I've ordered a few copies in. and I'll have them available next week. Um, but the other one is, is a little more pricey. I didn't bring it in, but I own it if you want to borrow it. Um, it's Richard Balcom, who's a heavyweight um, biblical scholar, theologian, and he wrote Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he talks about the eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people say, "Wow, can we really trust them? And Balcom just says, well, why, why shouldn't we? Why can't we trust them? And, and he describes how they how they offer um, their perspective on what they saw. And he says that there's, there's good historical credibility to this. And the other thing, and I've sh- I shared this with you last time, I didn't go into details, but there's lots of um, hostile accounts of people who had no interest in Christianity talking about the life of Jesus, his death, and his supposed resurrection. Like, they don't believe it. But... They certainly know that this is what the Christians believed, so it's kind of you can you can mirror read it in a little bit. And so, one of the questions that often comes up is the question of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some people will say, "Well, you know, if you read the story of the resurrection, you get different accounts. They, they're they're different. So those are just contradictions. So it's probably just made up." And I've often heard that argument. There's, there's discrepancies in terms of the actual description of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who was there? Was it two women? Was it three women? Was it th- who, who? And because there's discrepancies, then that shows that, you know, it's probably just all made up. But here's, I push back and say, well, what if you read in the four Gospels the exact same account? It was exact word for word. What would your complaint be if you were not a believer? It's all made up because they just copied each other. See, you're, you're, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't because if you say, well, they're different, well, obviously they're contradictions. They're all the same. Obviously, they just copied from each other. Well, what do you got left? So what, what I see is descriptions of the resurrection that have slight differences that gives it, I think, a ring of truth. Like, if you've ever seen an eyewitness to an accident, were they wearing a green coat? Were there two people? No, there's three people. But they all agree there was an accident. They all say there was an accident. And I think, and Marty touched on this last week, I think the fact that um, the the immediate eyewitnesses were women (laughs) speaks volumes. In the book of Matthew, in Jewish law, three witnesses for any event were preferred. But rather than padding the event with prominent men, Matthew is content with only two women, well known to him as witnesses. And and in in the modern way of thinking, we think, oh, of course women could be uh, witnesses. But in the first century Jewish culture and Greco-Roman culture, uh, this, this, um, the testimony of women was not deemed credible. And if this is a fabricated account, there's no way they would have chosen women. And I think the, uh, the authenticity is further supported by the embarrassing acts of all the early church leaders. I mean, you look at the life of Peter. I mean, who wants, who wants to follow a leader who's known as Doubting Thomas? Um, and the other thing is some people would suggest that, well, what the Bible teaches us, let's not get all literal here. It's probably not. By resurrection, what they mean is that Jesus died and will live forever in the hearts of man. Um, But the word resurrection cannot mean anything other than bodily coming back to life. That's what the word resurrection means. And the Jewish hope was resurrection. It was embodied existence. It's not this, you know, he's going to live on in in the hearts of men or his spirit has gone up to heaven and therefore this is a great thing resurrection means resurrection it means your body has come back to life again and if you're a Greek person and you hear resurrection you're like this is stupid why would you want a body again nowhere else other than within Jewish and in this case Christian context nowhere else in the ancient world was there any belief in resurrection there's belief in the afterlife, there's belief that you could die and you can be reincarnated or whatever. But there's no belief in resurrection. Resurrection was a distinctly Christian event. The, what took place is bodily coming back to life again. So, how do we read the Bible? I'm going to give you guys some time for questions in a second, but uh, let me just... How are we doing for time? Oh, we're doing okay. Oh, this is good. Um how do we read the Bible for all that's worth? Well, I think we need to recognize that the Bible is not like any other book. I like what Chuck Colson says. He says, The Bible, banned, burned, beloved, more widely read, more frequently attacked than any other book in history. Generations of intellectuals have attempted to discredit, discredit it. Dictators of every age have outlawed it. And executed those who read it, yet soldiers carry it into battle believing it more powerful than their weapons. Fragments fragments of it smuggled into solitary prison cells have transformed ruthless killers into gentle saints." And so when we read the Bible we need to recognize the authority of the Bible rests in three areas. One is Revelation. We believe that the Bible is God's revelation of himself, of his purposes. So that makes the Bible different from any other book. We believe that this is God's revelation of himself. But we also believe in inspiration, that the Bible is inspired. And what that means is that God works through people to reveal himself. And he uses their personalities. He uses their culture. He uses everything about them. That doesn't disappear as God is revealing himself to them. And so it's not a dictation. So it's not like, all right, Gord, on behalf of God, write this down. This is good. (laughs) Say, I, Gord, hang on. Say hello to the Corinthians. I like that um again all this it's not a dictation we don't believe in divine dictation we believe that god has revealed himself but he uses the personality of people in culture in history and so that also is part of part of uh part of what's what's in the bible and what makes the bible so remarkable is that the bible is written over a period of maybe 1500 years in 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 very different places by a wide range of writers usually using a wide range of genres and yet they all say the same thing about the character and the purposes of god i think that's that's what makes it different from the quran that's what makes it different from the book of mormon or anything like that it is a miraculous book and the third thing and this is absolutely key is that to read the Bible for all it's worth? You need illumination, and that is a work of the Spirit to lift the words off the page and speak into your life and speak into this world. Now, I've shared this before, but in the past, I had a buddy of mine who kept giving me Bibles, and I never wanted to read them. And I thought the Bible was the dullest book on the planet. And I like reading; I do like reading, but I, I, I hated the Bible. I thought it was so boring. And then i i prayed this prayer in shanghai and my big prayer was god if you're the real thing i'm in that was my big prayer and i felt this weight come off my back and something changed and then i grabbed this bible that my friend gave me i threw out the other two and i i kept the third one (laughs) he gave me three over the years and then i'm like okay i don't even know where to look i don't even know where to look because i i've never read the bible before And so it was a student Bible, and it said, well, here's the life of Jesus. I'm like, I'll start with the life of Jesus. So I opened it up, and I started reading it. And the first thing I read was, love your enemies. (laughs) I'm like, I have lots of enemies. Mm -hmm. And I did. I worked for a company, and it was corrupt. I worked in Shanghai. It was super corrupt. I was corrupt. My colleagues were corrupt. Um, And I hated them, and they hated me. But hating them hadn't gotten me anywhere. Some are like, all right, all right this, Jesus, if, if you are who you say you are, I'm going to listen to you. And I tried loving them. And they thought I was up to something. <laughs> they, they thought, oh, what's your, what's your, what's your game? Um, <laughs> but then I just started reading the word. And I remember I was working at Oak Ridge Mall at a bookstore course, the bookstore, uh, but I was working at Oak Ridge Mall, and during my breaks, I had my Bible, and I just, I just wanted to read the Bible. I could, and, and the words, these words that were dull as dirt before, and they were jumping, jumping off the page, and speaking into my situation, speaking into my life, guiding me where I was at, and I'm like, how did I never see this before? The difference is, is the Holy Spirit was illuminating the Word, and He was drawing me into places and what, what gets me is that here we have an, uh, events that took place 2,000 years ago, and yet somehow I'm reading them, and I'm praying, and I'm meditating, and they're intersecting with what I'm, what's happening at Oak Ridge Mall with my colleagues. Do you know what I mean? It, it entered into this, the specificity of my life. And I thought, what kind of book is this? And like you, I've, I've I've read this many times, and each time I read it, as Natalia, you were saying, you, you get something different out of it. And so our posture, though, and this is really important, we need to study God's word in order to discern what is metaphor and what is what is um, what is literal. And there, there's going to be some debates, and Christians don't always agree on on everything. You know, when it comes to Jonah and Job and some of these, uh, there's 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 different perspectives on that, but. Um, when we read god's word this is really important is we stand under his word We're, we we never master his word i once uh went to a conference and it was um the conference was uh it was called sbl society of biblical literature and and this conference is held every year and there's two thousand biblical scholars that descend and they all present papers um, again i was part of the bookstore cohort so we just kind of went along and but we go to this conference, 2000. And so one year I went there and I went there and we were on the plane with Gordon Fee, he was uh, the, the biblical. And I said, Gordon, how do, how do you manage this place? He goes, It's hard. I said, what, What's so difficult about it? He goes, Well, there's 2000 biblical scholars, but maybe 30 Christians. And I remember coming out of my hotel room and I saw this one. Uh, uh, doctoral student, this uh, this young woman, and you see that she's kind of looking for this professor because she's hoping to get a job, right? Get a lot of people looking for jobs there. And she goes, "Oh, professor, uh, it's, uh, so and so, it's so I'm from this university." And uh, and I could just I was listening to her. She goes, "Well, she goes in my study." She goes, um, "I am a uh, I am a Luke two chapter uh, scholar," and I'm gonna say I'm like Luke two scholar she spent her whole doctorate studying one chapter in the book of luke everything is on the book of luke chapter 2. and i just remember watching these guys and these guys are experts in god's word but very few of them were christian yeah in fact i always remember because they're standing over god's word so there's a story um there's a story by herman melville i think it's called lord jim Hopefully I got that right. But in Lord Jim, there's a character that takes place on a ship in the 19th century or something like that. And on the ship, there's a surgeon. And the surgeon's name is Dr. Cuticle. That's his name, Dr. Cuticle. And Dr. Cuticle is a very excited surgeon. And and he, he just wants to practice his craft because he's learning about anatomy. He's learning about the human body. And sure enough, the opportunity comes up because one of the sailors gets injured. Dr. Cuticle, we need some help. He's like, I'm on it. And so they put him on a table, and he comes up to him and he opens up his, all of his instruments, and he says, gather around, gather around, everybody look. He goes, he goes, the human body is miraculous. And he starts cutting up, you know, he's doing an operation, and while he's doing the operation, he's like, he goes, check out. this is where the liver is. This is where the spleen is. Uh, I'm pretty sure those are the kidneys. And, 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 he, and he's so excited. He's just describing the wonders of the human body. But everybody's gone quiet. And he's like, guys, aren't you taking this in? And what he never noticed while he's doing the operation is that the patient was dead, that he had died. And that's what happens sometimes. We stand over God's word and we explore it. This is chapter 2, and this is what God means. And he doesn't mean this, and it means this. It means, and we, 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 we dissect it. And we're like, ha, but we, we've killed it. And so it means it doesn't have any effect upon us. So we don't stand over God's word. We stand under it because it's God's word. And so we do everything from a place of faith. Doesn't mean we don't study it well. Doesn't mean we don't ask hard questions. But we do it from a position of faith. And when you do that, the word of God is alive. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.